Hey guys, I'm Rich Garcia. Come find out what the Word of God says about your identity, your authority, your victory, and your freedom. Right here on March Forward. What's going on, everybody? What's going on? Uh, Rich Garcia, you are now listening to March Forward. I, uh, I wanted to come today and talk with you guys about uh, the passing of Rabbi Zacharias. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Rabbi Zacharias, I highly suggest you go on YouTube and um, you, you check him out. Uh, Rabbi was, uh, was an Indian-born Canadian-American Christian apologist. Uh, he was super influential in um, my walk as far as uh, my walk with Christ and learning what apologetics was. You know, my whole life growing up, uh, you 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 have this faith and you believe in it. And I was fortunate enough. I never doubted I never I never doubted the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just never knew another way of defending it or better yet presenting it even outside of the gospel with historical facts and and logic. You know, there is always faith, but Faith, I'm a firm believer, faith doesn't have to be accompanied, uh, not accompanied uh, by itself and not accompanied without logic. So uh, it was it was a pleasure to find someone like Rabbi Zacharias. And what led me to find him was that movie God's Not Dead, because this was the first time I had seen um, apologetics at its best. I, I had no idea what it was. Uh, it, it, that led me to that. But anyway, this, this, again, this isn't about me. This is about Rabbi Zacharias and the life that he led. And if you never heard of what Christian apologetics is, it is pretty much, um, a branch of Christian theology that defends Christianity against objections. And Rabbi was probably the best I've ever heard. Um, you know, I, I, I was familiar with Nabil Koresh, Koreshi. He was awesome. David Wood is another one. Um, Frank uh, uh, Turk, I believe his last name is. He's great. But Rabbi Zacharias is just uh, just amazing to listen to. Uh, he was the author of 30 books on Christianity. And what's interesting about uh, Rabbi's life, as far as how he came to Christ, he was a former skeptic. Um, at the age of 17, uh, he was actually on suicide watch. He, he tried to take his life. And I believe in his own testimony, he, he speaks about coming to the point of suicide because of having lack of identity. Uh, and that's one of the things that I, I speak about a lot as far as what March Forward is. And, and the first thing that you need to come to an understanding is, what is your identity? Who are you in Christ? Um, and what's interesting about his testimony is that a minister came to the hospital and he wanted to read the Bible to, to Ravi, but his mother wouldn't let him. So the minister just asked the mom to, to his mother to read, to read the Bible to him. And she began to read John and, and Ravi is sitting suicide watch, you know, contemplating life. And he hears his mother read John 14, 19. And it says, because I live, you also will live. And he stated it changed his life forever. He committed his life to Christ and promising that he would not leave any stone unturned in his pursuit for truth. And uh, John 14 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says that 
this became the cornerstone in his ultimate pursuit and in his mission as a Christian apologist and an evangelist to present and defend the truth of Jesus Christ that others might find life in him. So in 1984, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi uh, Zacharias founded the International Ministries, which is RZIM. You can actually go check him out, rzim.org. And uh, there he practiced evangelism, apologetics, spiritual disciplines, training, and humanitarian support. I really want to honor, honor his life and, and what, he, what he did for Jesus and what he did for the gospel. I'm going to play some clips so you can, if you never heard Rabbi, you can hear him for yourself. And, and I'll chime in and, and, and just talk about, you know, maybe put my own little spin on certain things. But man, I just really hope in Jesus name, these, these clips and, and, and these quotes just touch your heart. And if you've ever, you've ever wondered about the gospel from a, a logical standpoint, not just faith, because some people, they, they, it's hard for them to, to come to faith without first having some type of logic. So I hope that this is what this uh, accomplishes. And more so, I think if anything, it's um, it's inspired me to maybe do a couple uh, podcasts where, you know, I, I present some uh, uh, arguments, Christian foundation arguments from an apologetic standpoint, because really what the point of March Forward is to reach the lost. It's also to reach the Christian who may not know their Bible that well and really just bring in a wave, that, 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 that awakening that is about to take place and uh, that you can march forward in faith and, and, and know truly what you believe in and that Jesus Christ is King. You're going to hear Ravi, Ravi in, in some of the video clips I, I play, you're going to hear him say Christianity is not the only religion or not the, yeah, is not the only religion that claims exclusivity. There are others, but truth by definition does exclude. Why? Because you cannot have multiple truths on the same topic. You, you cannot have, you can't have, well, my God is right. My God is right. My God is right. Eventually, one God must stand above them all. And that's why truth by definition excludes. Um, I have two quotes I want to read you before we get into these video clips. He says, my goal is to satisfy the hunger and longing for those who are seeking the truth. That should be the heart cry of any Christian. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, that is our heart cry, to satisfy the hunger and longing for those who are seeking the truth. If we do not learn our word, if we do not walk it out, how could we ever provide for those who are hungry for truth? When you come to religion, you come to a place. When you come to Jesus Christ, you come to a person. And that is what I seek to accomplish with March Forward, is not to introduce people to religion, but to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to get into some, some clips of, of Rabbi, and, and I hope it inspires you to want to go and, and listen to, to these clips. Um, and we're going to take a, an apologetics approach here today, and we're going to have some fun. So the first clip we get into is, why doesn't God stop evil? 
That was a question that was asked to Rabbi. Why doesn't God stop evil? Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, the playing the devil's advocate, you said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. It was interesting of all people, it was Oscar Wilde who on his deathbed in his 40s, by his lover by his side, Robbie Ross, he turned to Robbie and he said, did you love any one of those little boys for their own sake? It was an incredible question to ask by a man who was a hedonist on his deathbed in his 40s. And he said, Robbie, did you ever love any one of those little boys for their own sake? And Robbie Ross said, no, I can't say I did. He said, bring me a minister. Bring me a minister. And it was in his magnificent poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, that Oscar Wilde said, only Christ was big enough to cleanse his heart and forgive him for all that he had done. The point even the hedonist realized was that in pleasure also, value and love are the supreme ethics that can be treasured. But you can never have love without intrin intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're gonna be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different entity than humanity. As wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive, the greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as a supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign supreme. 
if you want compliance and, a and some kind of a mechanical response, your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it, and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mideastern folklore of this man who lost his horse that ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing, it's not bad luck, it's good luck. You've got 20 more. The man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming, looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man, but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes, we don't know what lies ahead. Why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself by the, as the pilgrim's progress to come to the so, so that, is, that, that is so good what he said there, right? Because we're always, we're always left wondering, like, God, where are you? Or, you know, how could you let that happen? It's been a question for the longest time. And and hearing hearing him speak about that right there, I mean, it, it brings to, to mind what my pastor always says, right? Like, we may not be able to see down the road, but we know who sees down the road because he is the Alpha and the Omega, right? Um, the beginning and the end. He's the author and finisher of our story you know before you even get there he's been there already nothing catches him by surprise anyway the next question uh the next clip i want to cover uh rabbi was asked the question why is christianity right i think you've asked a very very important question first of all let me qualify it a little bit, and I'm sure you already know that, that not all religions talk about an afterlife, uh, mainly the monotheistic ones do. The pantheistic ones are reincarnation, even the reincarnation between Buddhism and Hinduism is a little different. In Hinduism, it's the transference of identity one into another in a different form, but in uh, Buddhism, it's not even sure whether it's the identity that's transmigrated or just another form of essence that has emerged. A worldview is built not on one line of argument. A worldview is built on a connected series of arguments. And if a worldview were just built on one line of argument, I think this is the mistake naturalism often makes. It'll take sort of one argument that it has in its favor and forget all the myriad other questions that emerge. When I look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ, this is the most important question I had to ask. Now, granted, I asked it in reverse fashion because I was on a bed of suicide. A Bible was brought to me, and I prayed a prayer of desperation. I grant you that. I just had no hope. But I was read the verse. Jesus said, because I live, you also shall live. 
I just said this is talking about a life that I don't have. And maybe this is the life I need. And so I prayed that prayer. But then I made a prayer commitment right on that bed. I was 17 and I said, Jesus, if you're who you claim to be, I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. Because my goal was truth. Pragmatically, it made sense for me to hang on to a life jacket that was thrown my way. But then I began my years and years and years of study. When you look at the life of Christ from the prophetic schema of hundreds of years before, where he was going to be born, what he was going to do, what his name was going to be called, how the manner of birth was, the manner of life he was going to lead, how he was going to die, and then the resurrection from the dead. The uniqueness about the New Testament or Old Testament scriptures, it's not a single author. It's multiple authors. As you know, 66 books, 40 different authors have edited it. And it is interesting that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who wrote one-third of it, came in a reverse fashion to the rest of them. The disciples came birth, life, death, resurrection, and that's how they found new Jesus. Not so with Saul, who came to be, he became Paul. He said, when he was encountered the risen Christ, he said that I may know him, the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. He started with the resurrection, but he said he needed to understand the cross because he came in reverse chronological order, but he encountered the risen Christ the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and Thomas especially, these two dramatic conversions are powerful witnesses of what happened. Saul who was killing them, he was standing, standing there watching Stephen being martyred and kept the clothes of those who were stoning him. Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I see the resurrected Christ myself. And he went to India where there are 330 million deities. And he went and preached the gospel of Jesus and paid with his own life. That kind of dramatic transformation took place not because of just one event, but a connected series of events. So here's the bottom line. A worldview is built around four questions. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And there are three tests for truth. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Three tests for four questions. And when you take the, the prophecy of Christ hundreds of years before from his virgin birth, you take the purity of his life unmatched, totally unmatched till this very day. Then the death that he promised for the forgiveness of sins and then the resurrection. As an Easterner, I asked myself this question. When Jesus was asked how he was gonna demonstrate it, if he were a fake, he would have said, I'm going to spiritually rise again. And they would never be able to falsify it. But he said, I'm bodily going to rise again. That is an empirically falsifiable dictum. All they would have had to show him was the body and say, where is he? You said he was going to rise again. So it's in the whole schema of the prophetic corpus, the hundreds of years, the multiple authors pointing towards the same, same person from his virgin birth to the purity of his life, to the death on the cross for forgiveness when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And then the resurrection again. My four questions are answered correspondingly with truth on specific questions and coherently when all of the questions are put together and answers are given. So to me, first of all, all religions are not the same. They are actually, they may, they, people say they're fundamentally the same, superficially different. Actually, they're fundamentally different and at best superficially similar. And the fundamental difference that you see in Jesus Christ 
is in his uniqueness and exclusivity of his claim and the embrace that he gives to all humanity, the perfection of his life, the purity of his life, the death and the resurrection. To me, that coherence of his answers convinces me that he is who he claimed to be and truth by definition is exclusive. All truth claims to be exclusive, Buddhism claims to be exclusive, Hinduism claims to be exclusive, they all have exclusivity built into that but in the person of Christ you see the demonstration in his birth, life, death and resurrection. So I say to me I am convinced that because it coheres and because I have personally verified it in my own life and you can do that too and find that experience and that he is who he claimed to be. Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. Listen to what he said. In his birth, life, what he taught, his death and resurrection, he is the, the only one. He is the only one. And because of that, Christianity, the, the gospel, the message of the gospel is exclusive. It separates itself from every other faith. No other faith has has God himself in the flesh stating that I have come, I have preached to you, I have died for you, I have risen and I'm coming again. And the only way you come to God the Father is through God the Son. That That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. So all religions claim ex exclusivity, but Christianity is the only one that claims Jesus is the only way. Every religion claims exclusivity in, in some form. You must believe because this is it. You got to believe us because this is it. But Jesus is the only one that lived out that exclusivity, died for that exclusivity, and was raised again for that exclusivity, and offers it as a free gift to all those who seek truth. So the next question uh, that I came across that Rabbi was asked was very similar to why is Christianity right? The question was, how do you know that Christianity is the one true worldview? I'm not trying to be repetitive and, and playing something quite similar, but I found it quite interesting, and I think you will too, how he answers this slightly different. The, 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 um, the substance of the answer doesn't change, but the way he says it, it really connects. And so we're going to get into this. And then I have two more questions I'll play that he had answered, and then we'll wrap up the show today. Uh, but again, I, I, I hope this is touching your heart, whether you're a believer or whether you're someone who's always been skeptical about the gospel and, and needed it, uh, delivered to you in a logical way before you can make that leap of faith. I believe in Jesus name that this will touch your heart. If anything, get you thinking, what if, what if? So let's get into the next question. How do you know that Christianity is the one true worldview? Oftentimes the Christian takes the hit that he or she was a follower of Jesus Christ is the only one who lays claim to exclusivity. That is not true. <clears throat> Gautama Buddha was born a Hindu and he renounced two of the fundamental doctrines of Hinduism, the authority of the Vedas and uh, the caste system. He could not accept those two, went on his own journey in search of enlightenment and came, of course, with the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the ultimate extinguishing of desire in his nirvanic pursuit. So he turned his belief away from the religion of his birth in order to find a different answer. 
<clears throat> Islam is also exclusivistic in its claim, uh, in all of its precepts and its five pillars and so on. What about these contradistinctions? The first thing we need to know is there are distinctions, there are fundamental differences. At best, there are superficial similarities. <clears throat> I often hear the question posed wrongly. They'll say, are all, aren't all religions fundamentally the same and superficially different? No, they are fundamentally different and at best, they are superficially similar. What are the fundamental claims, for example? In Buddhism, the goal is to ex extinguish hunger, extinguish desire. I remember talking to the first woman monk who was from Thailand to be ordained into the Buddhist priesthood. But Thai Buddhists do not ordain women, so she went to Sri Lanka to be ordained, and she has a PhD in philosophy from McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, Ontario. And uh, Waterloo, I guess, Ontario, McMaster University there. Got her PhD in philosophy, and she gave me the first interview. We chatted for well over an hour, one-on-one, -on -one, and I, sort of angled into some questions because I didn't want to be too discourteous. And one of the things I said to her is, I hear you're married. And she said, yes. I said, you have children? She said, yes. I said, but you're living in a temple by yourself? She said, yes. I said, do you not see your children? She started crying. She said, I have a car. I said, you have a car? She said, yeah. I said, okay. So she drove herself because she can't allow uh, a man to drive her, she said, so she has to drive herself. And she says, every evening at the end of the day, I try and meet up with one of my children. She said, this is the hardest part of my life. I said, so you are on the journey to extinguishing the desire to be with your children. Is that right? Is that a fair assessment? She kept quiet. And then I said this. I said, the Dalai Lama has as his primary pursuit now the freedom of Tibet. She said, that's right. I said, why does he desire that? She looked at me and she said, we try not to get into these philosophical questions. Let's just say that he chooses to. You take a look at other world religions <clears throat> and see where these four questions are dealt with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. These four questions have to be answered in two ways. Follow me, please. Every particular answer has to correspond to truth, either through empirical form of measurement or through the logical reasoning process. And when those four answers are put together, they must cohere and not be incoherent. So the two tests, correspondence and coherence, I guarantee you only in the Judeo-Christian worldview will you find these four questions answered with corresponding truthfulness and with the coherence of a worldview. Let me take just one example, and I don't say this to slight, but this is a fact and we have to deal with it. I've been invited in many, many Islamic countries and I have open forums there and going to go to one of the toughest Islamic countries within the next few weeks. They've hosted me in many parts there and we've had dialogues. I want to give to you two things. In the Quran, it is the only historically claimed document that denies that Jesus Christ was actually crucified or died on the cross. Denies that. 
The Greek historians say he died on the cross. Roman historians say that. Pagan historians say that. Jewish historians say that. And Christian historians say that. The Islamic, uh, the, the Quran is the only one that says it appeared to him that he died, but he didn't actually die on the cross. So historically, it is making an affirmation that is really historically untrue. I got into a discussion with Sheikh Hussein of the leading Shiite cleric in Damascus, Syria, a real gentleman. For over three hours, we talked with an interpreter between us and an audience listening in. I was allowed to ask him one question about his faith, and he was allowed to ask me one question about mine. There was nothing, no rancor, no adversarial stance, just a perspective and counter-perspective and back and forth. It's the best way to do it, really. At the end of it, Sheikh Hussein looked at me. He was very respectful through the whole time, always referred to me as Professor, Professor Zacharias, Professor Zacharias. And then at the end, he looked at me, leaned over, and he said, you know, Professor, I think the time has come for us in the Islamic world to stop asking if Jesus Christ died and to start asking why. I said to him, may I quote you on that, sir? He said, yes, you may. I'm, I'm hopefully going to go there before long and I hope we can meet up again. Origin, meaning, morality and destiny. The Judeo-Christian worldview is not the only one that claims exclusivity, but it's the only one that takes those four questions with corresponding answers that are truthful and coherent answers that stand the test of time. And the ultimate answer of the resurrection from the dead that gives you hope and meaning. You know, the, the first time I heard uh, that recording and Rabbi share that story, with the man of the Muslim faith, it just, uh, it made me cry because as a believer of Christ, that's what we're called to do. We're, we're called to bring the gospel and to get people to begin to ask the question, why? Um, if you've never seen uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, uh, it's a film on Netflix. I believe it's still on there. If not, it, it, you know, Go on any streaming site, probably for like three bucks. Watch it. It's so amazing. And there is a scene where he is in a Catholic church. And, you know, he, yeah, I won't give away the whole movie, but he's a reporter and he's doing a piece on whether or not Jesus Christ uh, existed and was, uh, you know, was he who he claimed to be. And when he's standing there with the pastor of the church, he asked the question, why? Why would he die for, for anyone? And the, uh, the pastor simply says, because of love. And, um, and I hope that gentleman who asked Rabbi that and anyone else from a different faith, why? Why, G why would Jesus die for me? They go on that journey and that they discover it's because of love. That's that's why. Um, again, as I said, I have two more. The next one we're gonna do. Uh, let's get into. Uh, oh, we'll chop it up with a good laugh. One of the questions that we're asked: uh, Why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? And, and for those who may not understand uh, or may be familiar, and again, I, I should have pre-warned you guys. Um, you know. 
sometimes you can listen to rabbis speak and, and, it, and it's like this dish of linguistics and words that are put so masterfully together, but at the same time, it can't go over your head. So, uh, but uh, subjective moral reasoning, subjective moral reasoning, just to give you a little background behind it. It's when someone's asking the question of why does there have to be an ultimate morality? Why can why can't morality be subjective per person uh, to their own right? And why and, and in so can't we trust that people because they have their subjective morality would make the right decision, uh, whether to do good or to do evil? So anyway, again, here is the question. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Let's leave aside Christianity and historical examples for a second. All night you guys have been grappling with issues like morality and you know what is right, what is wrong, and meaning. But my question is simply, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? I mean, do you think that we're all just going to start raping and pillaging just because we don't have a book to tell us what to do? I mean, are you afraid of that? Like, I'm not, because that's not going to happen. And that, yeah, Nazis were bad, but there were Christian Nazis and there were atheist Nazis. So I don't see... What are you so afraid of? Do you lock your door at night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> You know, I hear what you're saying. Sounds very cavalier, though. My goodness. If we weren't afraid of all of this, we would not be in a national debt. The Ch billions, China is secular. Uh, uh, sorry? China is secular. Sorry? China is secular. That's right. What about, what does that I mean? I mean, they're not raping and pillaging, and neither are we. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. Oh, my. Have you read what happened during the Red Guards Rebellion? Have you read what happened during the Boxer Rebellion? Do you know who has killed more people in the 20th century than China and Russia? 60 million apiece? Wow. It makes the Holocaust seem tame. The 20th century became the bloodiest century in history. And the reason it became the bloodiest century in history, I can see, is you could just see the weapons of our warfare were piling up and there was no guiding principle to take us anywhere. Now, in a perfect world, yes, we don't need to be afraid. Have you seen what happens in our courts of law where people supposedly love each other and all that comes about in hate and vitriol and damage? I don't think the question is fairly stated as what have you, are you afraid of? I'm just saying it is basically unlivable. That's, I didn't conclude that. An atheist like Jean-Paul Sartre concluded it. We killed more people in the 20th century than the previous 19 put together. And your question is uh, what are we afraid of? The fact of the matter is if morality is purely subjective, then you have absolutely nothing from stopping anybody for being a subjective moralist to choose to just zing one through your forehead and say, that's my answer. You know, how do you, how do you stop that? Obviously, you don't believe that's the way it should be. No, neither do I. So it's not a case of what am I afraid of. It's a case of the fact that if you're willing to say to me that uh, moral reasoning can be purely subjective, I just say to you, 
Look out, you ain't seen nothing yet if everybody believed what you did. Do you know, uh, funny, interesting, when I was in, in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, Stalin eliminated 15 million of his own people. 15 million of his own people. And at the center for geopolitical strategy, you know, they didn't want to even name his name and so on. His daughter Svetlana made the comment, it is quoted both by Malcolm Muggeridge in his writings and by historian Paul Johnson in modern times. Svetlana was standing by the bedside of her father before he died. She said the last thing he did was clench his fist over the heavens one more time, put his head back on the pillow, and he was gone. This is his daughter raising the question, whatever got into my father to have that kind of hatred and hostility? And when 15 million were killed of his own people, it is interesting that the faculty members and the general who chatted with me there, my wife will tell you, sat around the table with tears in his eyes when he watched what had been done to his own country by his own leadership. So subjective morality would be very good if we all wanted to be nice people and live around each other without any uh, fear of each other. But the reason you lock your doors and the reason we have our police and the reason we have our military and the reason we have our law courts is because when subjective morality becomes totally subjectivized, this is what happens in society. So it's a great idea. So again, I hope nobody absorbs a lot it. of... Um, Thank you. We go on to the next I want to say a lot, but I've heard that question asked before and really a lot of times it comes from um someone with the position of saying we do not need god for there to be uh, a good moral standing or standard for us to live by and uh, i chose that for you guys to listen so you can hear how ravi rabbi himself handled that question and again the whole point of apologetics is being able to give a reason for your faith on certain topics and it not just be because I believe. Because again, that's not, that's, it's just not that easy for everyone. So last question we're going to get into, is it unfair to claim that the people who don't believe in Jesus are condemned to hell? It's a good question. In uh, logic, it's called uh, the, the, the fallacy of uh, calendar or time, or however you want to put it. If that is assumed to be, therefore, the guidepost for truth, that this came before, think of all the things people have believed before, whatever we believe now, that were so fallacious. You can't really go by the calendar. Uh, what happens to Islam? Because uh, Christianity predated Islam by six centuries, you know. What happens to the Gita over against the Vedas? The Vedas came centuries before. They were monistic. The Gita is more theistic. What happens to the Vedas after that? Uh, what happens to uh, Hinduism after Buddhism comes on the scene? Or then after Buddhism comes Jainism? And then a late comer was uh, Sikhism. Do all that happen before, all that believed things before? So it's a fallacious starting point. I think what we need to also correct, this idea that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago and therefore anything that predates that would have to take precedence. Actually, 3,000 years before Jesus was Abraham who lived by faith. 
we talk about the Judeo-Christian worldview. You go back 1400s before Jesus and you've got Moses giving the law and talking about uh, ultimately how the law points to a redeemer and so on. So even that is fallaciously believed that it was something new that just came 2000 years ago. The Bible says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken to us through the prophets in the last days has spoken to us through the Son. Here's the illustration I like to give. It's like this. One of our servants went to see a movie for the first time and he walked into the theater and was looking in the wrong direction. And he thought he had paid money to look at beams of light coming, in th coming out through holes in the wall until he turned to the right and looked at the screen and said, oh my word, what am I seeing? I'm seeing a face. Many religious worldviews could have been those beams coming out of the wall. Ultimately, the light shines on the person and the face of Jesus Christ in whom was the culmination and the consummation of all truth. There may be hints of truth in these other worldviews. The totality of it was in the person of Jesus Christ. So to the person listening, I just say, take the Gospel of John, start reading it, see what it says about Jesus, see his answers to your questions, and you'll find the consummate expression of truth in his person. However we answer that, the most important part of the answer is this, that the Bible says the judge of all the earth will do that which is right. It's interesting that that statement comes in the context of the judgment that was coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. God is more fair than you or I. God will do that which is right. But it also tells us historically how people, what did Abraham know? He was raised in a culture of polytheism and so on, but he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Where did he come up with that idea from? God speaks to us within our own consciences. God speaks to us in the privacy of our own, of our own lives. And the fact is that he speaks through conscience, he speaks through creation, he speaks ultimately through his word and then in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But having said that, God really doesn't send anybody to hell. This is a very important truth. We make our choice. C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who bend their knee to God and say to him, your will be done. Or those who refuse to bend their knee to God and God says to him or her, your will be done. Ultimately, the choice we make for eternity is made by the submission of our wills to our heavenly Father. He will not violate our wills. Even heaven will be hell to the person who doesn't want to spend eternity with God. That sacred gift of my freedom is given to me by God. I invite the listener to bend your knee and say to him, your will be done. His will is the most beautiful thing you can pursue. I mean, I played this today. I wanted to show this today because he, as I said earlier, opening up the show, he had such a way of sharing the gospel and answering tough questions that, that sometimes even the most um, proficient uh, pastor struggles with or person who studied the Bible. And um, I mean, listen to what he said, you know, if, if God overstepped his place and allowed everyone with him right even heaven would be hell to somebody who doesn't want to be with god that's um that's powerful and and as c.s lewis did state right you will either bow your knee to god 
and serve him, right? And do his will, or you will bow your knee to yourself and do your own will. So anyway, guys, that's this episode for March Forward. Um, my prayers, my love to the Zacharias family. Rabbi, thank you for all that you did. Thank you for answering the call. Thank you for not leaving one stone unturned. Thank you for marching forward in the plans and purposes that God had for your life. And I think I'd be safe in saying that I'm pretty sure Rabbi heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you guys. Catch you next time. Tell them I'm so free, I got no chains on me.